0: Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday down south, joined by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. On tonight's show, we're going to be joined by Graham Hall in just a moment. The Gainesville Sun, the Gator beat writer, uh, covers basketball and a lot of other Florida sports for the Gainesville Sun. Return guest, happy to have Graham on and have Kevin Brockway on here in a couple weeks. uh, Just doing a lot of different uh, guests coming up. But first, uh, Eric, man. Never a dull moment in Gator Nation, as our buddy Dave Waters says.
1: <laughs> no, uh, obviously we knew that Florida was going to be active in the transfer market. Uh, I didn't think that there was going to be all these names so soon. So uh, with with all the spots they've got to fill, I, I guess that's a good thing because we might be able to sprinkle in some of this transfer news over the next who knows how long, weeks. Months, maybe. I, I I don't know, but it was definitely good to get those those first names out of the way. Uh, two names that uh, I was pretty happy with, of course. I mean, there are two guys that I identified that were my two personal favorites that I thought that Florida had reached out to at the time. So, uh, yeah, good good start to the offseason, no question.
0: Yeah, it really was a good start to the offseason as we uh, take the show live here um, at, at the request of some DMs. But uh, <laughs> we'll get into the transfer Transfers that are coming in and, and spots still to fill in just a second. Did want to announce a couple of things: partnership with T-Public. So, Gators Florida basketball our, uh, swag, which has been something that people have requested, uh, is getting made. Uh, I will leak a few designs pretty soon. Obviously, our boy Eric Fawcett, my co-host, is going to get pretty dope hat and some gear. So, a partnership with T-Public uh, for that front. Also, my law firm Callahan Fusco is going to start sponsoring the Coach's Corner uh, portion of the show, and we are upping our uh, our sponsorship abilities. So, if you have that interest, uh, you want shout outs and and you know little sponsorships, we can do that. Just hit me up um, at uh, if, via DM at the at Florida BB Hour on Twitter. Also, would invite anyone that wants to to hit us up with a DM and join our uh, Masters Pool first annual Florida basketball, or master's pool. I get like really depressed when college basketball season ends, like, you know, generally kind of a emotional dude anyway. Uh, but it's like a tough time for me. It's like a tough couple of days and uh, having the Masters start right after um, as a Southerner, Eric is like a huge deal. Cause it's just something that's like the most awesome positive distraction.
1: Hey, that that's great. And I mean like uh yeah, I'm definitely an emotional person too. And uh yeah, it's man, it's sad when college basketball ends, it just like hit me like a brick after the uh few hours after the national championship game that i'm like oh man like well this is uh uh this kind of sucks don't like this feeling at all i just uh yeah i love basketball so much i love covering it i love watching it and uh it just i think that that's what inspires me to do so many like just like really labor intensive bizarre analytical dives in the offseason because i just love the game and i miss it so much but neil i i don't know if you're aware of, of about you know of this about my my personality but i uh i'm a huge sports fan i love everything except golf. that is one thing that I, I know absolutely nothing about like uh, so I know you tweeted out the thing about the masters pool. you know, I'm for sure gonna do it, but I tell I, like man, I, I know nothing is is Billy Horschel golfing? like is I, I don't even know how these masters pools work like so uh, like I don't even know the format so i'm I'm gonna be in it um i'm going to do my do my best probably you know try to do some research to have some fun and i will probably watch more than just like the late rounds on sunday than i normally do but it's it's crazy because i am into pretty much every sport and, and and golf is is massive up here in canada this is not uh the masters is massive up here in canada this isn't even like a a product of, of where I live or where I grew up. It's just that, yeah, it's a me personal thing. I just, I never, never got into golf. I uh, never watched much more than like the Sunday of the masters and like maybe the U S open, but uh, yeah, I'll be giving it my, giving it my all in the pool this year, even though, like I said, I don't even know the format of how these pools work.
0: Well, my uh, dad has comped your entry. So um, he <laughs> said, he learned, <laughs> said he learned more basketball from you this season than he has. Uh, for for most of my adult life, which I think was a minor dig on, on me. Um, Cause he did, he did say just kidding after that, but then said, man, that guy does know a lot of stuff. Wow. So uh, your, your, your master's uh, pool entry is comped and it's really very simple to play the way that our format works. And you'll see uh, when you, when you get that email. Um, so uh, any thoughts on the national title game before we dive into the portal? I mean, I, you know, I'll give you one. I don't want to, I didn't like the hot takes that were flying very quickly about Gonzaga not being ready for prime time and, you know, just this kind of like they play annually. One of the most brutal non-conference schedules in America. I do think there's some merit to having a really emotional win and then having to play a really good team immediately after that, Conference play like Baylor is in probably prepares you for a little bit more. I don't think that's a hot take either, but the idea that this wasn't a great Gonzaga team, we should we put that to bed immediately or should we talk about how good Baylor is? Yeah, I think Gonzaga was awesome. I, I just think
1: Baylor was better, and honestly, I think it was mad disrespectful that all season it was kind of looked at as. Uh, You know, Gonzaga's incredible. Are they the best college basketball team ever? Which I also think is a disrespectful take, um, which we could discuss. Uh, but, uh, But again, I just I truly think that people just missed how good Baylor was all season long. Um, something that I've been doing the last month, um, I don't know if I tweeted about it or anything. I don't think I've really told many people, but I was, uh, I did have a contract to, uh, to do some work with, uh, with a betting site, with a sports betting site, um, giving them some, some analytical insights and stuff like that. And uh, I'll tell you this, I told them I thought Bay- Baylor should have been favored by six. That was very different than the gonzaga line um there I, I was one of the people that was out there thinking that that baylor was truly a better team and i thought that they i thought they were considerably a better team so uh definitely made uh, made them happy that i was ultimately right for those who were <laughs> alongside my thought but again i just think that i think baylor was or sorry like i really do think gonzaga was awesome i think that they were extremely prepared and they played a very tough non-conference schedule and showed that they were prepared to play really good teams i just think baylor was absolutely incredible and uh, they shouldn't take anything away from how good gonzaga was um were they as good as baylor no and i i think that, that that's about it i think gonzaga was awesome and baylor was even better
0: yeah, I, I decided after watching that game that if they played seven times, Baylor would probably win five, um, and that's not a slight on Gonzaga. This Baylor team is just so dynamic offensively. Um, so, you know, I, I did think it was interesting the way I, Gonzaga defended how I thought they would defend, um, and I really give credit to Mark Few for adjusting to something that they don't do. In the national title game to see if it worked because their switching defenses weren't working, um, but but Gonzaga just they're going to have an answer for zone too the way that they shoot, and obviously they were they were really locked in and then that physical brand of defense that they play, even though this isn't quite as good a Baylor defensive team as we've seen in past years, it really isn't. Um, it still you have to exert so much energy to score against them um, that I think that affects teams. Defensively as well, Eric, and and we saw that a little bit last night too. Is Gonzaga would cut it to nine, and they just almost looked out of gas when they got there, Uh, and and just kind of a testament to Baylor's depth and a testament to the way Baylor puts so much stress on you on both sides of the floor.
1: Yeah, and I actually, I wrote an article um, today about, uh, I think I titled it Lessons from the Final Four, something like that. Um, Just kind of looking at these teams that that made it this far and and to say, hey, how could Florida look at uh, what teams are successful? And people who have listened to the podcast um, um, for a couple of of years now, which is crazy to say, um, or read my stuff for a couple of years, which is crazy to say, uh, that people will know that I'm very obsessed with like like what is what works in college basketball like people talk so much in a vacuum about like oh is this player good is the style good is the style gonna win and, and i always just think like let's look at what's had success in modern basketball let's look at the sample size of, of teams that are good and let's try to learn from it so uh so i wrote about that and and uh th- that was definitely one of the insights was just like man let's like look at the caliber of, of defense that Baylor played. And it's just like, well, you know where the bar is if you want to lock down a really good team because Gonzaga was just outstanding offensively. And against Baylor, um, against those guards, man, they just, they had nothing going for them. And that was just something that uh, is just so apparent that uh, uh, the, if you want to see the level of defense that you need to get to, if you're going to win, win a championship, um, particularly on the perimeter, uh, that's that's what you need to get to. That's the that's the benchmark right there. Those those Baylor guards that just made things so tough for Andrew Nembhard and so tough for Jalen Suggs. Of course, Jalen Suggs did get loose a little bit. Um, some of it was in transition, but uh, but I thought they did really well on them. And um, yeah, just uh, uh, it was it was just an interesting look where uh, there was kind of you know two different styles where where Gonzaga plays a little bit more of a finesse style where they they move the ball really well and uh, they like to space the floor well for for pick and rolls. And then you've got Baylor who. Uh, Matt, I mean, there was just times where it was, you know, Jared Butler, Dave, Davion Mitchell, and it was just like, no one could keep their feet in front of them. And they're just scoring in isolation over and over and over again. And uh, I do think that's the, that's uh, the other thing that was maybe my, my biggest takeaway from that, that game. And it's not going to be anything new to you, Neil, or anyone listening, but like those were unquestionably the two best backcourts in the league. And I thought that it was pretty interesting that, you know, Baylor's front court. And I know Mark Vidal had just like an awesome game and Flo Thamba and, Um, mayor those guys played well but it's like i don't think anyone's saying that baylor has a top you know 10 or 15 or even i would say 25 front court in the country not not even close and of course like you know gonzaga's got drew timmy he's a great player and they do have some great players in the front court i don't think anyone's arguing that they have the best front court i don't think either of those teams have the best wing corps in the league or in the country not even close but man they had the best backcourts and it just was another reminder that's like backcourts win in college basketball it doesn't matter if you have a average front court, if you have average wings, if you've got the best backcourt out there, um, you're going to go deep. And I think we saw that from, from two teams that had just outstanding
0: backcourts. And uh, that was that was pretty much uh, their bread and butter. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty good point. The, the rebounding disparity, before we bring Graham Hall on, I'll make the last point that I thought that the rebounding disparity might have reminded some Gator fans of Baylor's trip to the uh, Odom last year where they just smashed Florida. Uh, on the glass on a night where Baylor also seemed like they made a ton of threes and crushed forward in the glass. You just see, you saw a little bit of how good this Baylor team, which is essentially the same team could be uh, last year. Oh, Keontae Johnson had a cool 20 and 10 in that game, by the way, because you know, I've heard some stories on the Twitter sphere that he's not that great. Um, so I just, I, I kind of wanted to get that out there. That, you know, had a cool a cool double-double against the number one team in the country. Um, but uh, it didn't matter. Florida lost by 11 anyway, uh, which is something Gonzaga can relate to. Let's welcome in Graham Hall, Gainesville Sun, Gatorsports.com. Graham, man, what's going on? Thoughts on the national title game?
2: Well, I don't know about you. Did you have Baylor in, in your bracket?
0: You know what? I, I will, I will quickly point out that in uh, the Gators breakdown pool, which was the first bracket I did, I did pick Baylor and I woke up this morning and found out I finished second uh, in the Gators <laughs> breakdown pool. Well, so,
2: I, I'm assuming know. Eric was in the pool, right?
0: He wasn't, but some, somebody, it was the first round that sunk me. Like, I think like picking just random upsets, like no, it was Eric talked me into picking San Diego state. Oh, man, what an idiot. Some blaming Eric I, I, and, ah, and,
2: no, and Chris no, no. Acker I had San Diego State in my sweet sixteen. You know. <laughs> so I'm going to side with him, too. But I was telling Eric last night, you know, I actually made the opposite mistake. I picked too many upsets in the first round. I finished with 1,330 points, and I had Baylor. So I was like 98.6 percentile. I wasn't in the illustrious 99.9 percentile like you, Eric, but I – you know, I picked Abilene Christian. I picked Oral Roberts. I picked Ohio. I picked, I think I picked Moorhead state to win. And, and you know, I got half of the big ones, right? Between the 13 and the 15 picks, I had seven of them picked to win. And, you know, I just thought that there would be a lot of parody this season. I hate to explain it that way necessarily, but I just thought that there would be a lot of external factors this season. Um, Teams having played more games, the teams that hadn't been on a pause beforehand. You know, normally we look at things like that where there's momentum going into, you know, the tournament. Stuff that I guess does matter, but I don't know if I'd really say it mattered more than a team that had lost some players due to COVID or, or injuries. And, and that's really kind of what I looked at. I, I went with some teams that were lower seated that I thought were kind of hot and had a little bit of durability there. And uh, it, it worked out a little bit, but it kept me from that that real peak glory there. But that game last night, you know, I know I saw a lot of people saying that it was not a exciting game. Words matter that that's not, it wasn't UCLA Gonzaga back and forth riveting where you didn't have a possibly the all time greatest final four shot in history, but that was an amazing basketball game. I I mean, watching Baylor work on defense was an absolute clinic on how I think you guys were using this word, what the bar should be if you want to compete and have longevity in the NCAA tournament. That that was absolutely a, a how-to.
1: Well, that's, that's really the thing is I, I, I do think Baylor, or sorry, I do think Gonzaga was a tier better than everyone. And this is something I think I've said on the podcast. I, I, I do think that Gonzaga was a tier better than everyone offensively this season, but I think Baylor was, you know, what only one level below them offensively, but like, two tiers above anyone defensively. And I, and I know that the numbers never totally bared that out. Like it, it's pretty interesting to look at, to look at all the kind of advanced numbers of the adjusted defensive efficiency for Baylor. They're good, but not great. But man, every time I watch them play, I'm like, this is suffocating. Like, I I, I do think that was one of the products of like this weird season and like where you, you know, to Chicago's and, and Colgate are like way up there in the net. And Uh, and Ken Palm and like some sometimes things are just like we're a little bit wacky in some of those metrics I I just look at uh, look at Baylor I think they were like somewhere in the 20s and adjusted defensive efficiency on Ken Palm but I'm like man every time I watch this team play I'm just like in awe of their ability to to pressure the pressure ball handlers and uh, and and keep the ball on one side of the floor I just think it's it's so good but I'm with you Graham I, I loved watching that game like yes I would have preferred it be like down to a final shot and that'd be super fun and like hey it's the last game of the season give us an overtime or two like I would have been great with that but at the same time I was just watching that game just in, in in awe like I was just magnified at the basketball glory that was taking place on my screen like I just it was it was beautiful so there, there's the, definitely the side of me that just like loves competition and in, intense games yeah I would have liked to see something uh closer than that but it's, it's like man I don't even think Gonzaga played that bad I just think Baylor just blew their doors off like it was it was incredible and I mean man the only, it's it's really sad to say because I man I love Andrew Nemhard, but I, I he was the only player that I could really point to and said like wow that that guy had a bit of a rough game for Gonzaga everyone else seemed to really play pretty well and it was just like uh no Baylor's Baylor's just better
2: yeah I absolutely agree with that you know I I, I did feel for Andrew Nemhard. um because, you know, there were some sloppy turnovers, just some open looks that he had, especially ones late in the corner that just didn't seem to go his way. And and that happens, you know, the, the pressure of the moment gets to you. And I know that Andrew was really looking forward to proving a lot of naysayers wrong who unfairly labeled him. It seemed like as a guy who couldn't even play basketball. I think that a lot of Florida fans initially last year pinned the, the faults of the team on, on him because he brought the ball up the court. I, I don't want to say that, you know, I see a lot of revisionist history out there, people saying that, no, no, we didn't do that. We, we knew he was a good player. That's not really how it was. You, you saw that, yeah, he can be streaky like everyone else, but you saw in his run with Gonzaga this season how good he can be in a, a system with guys who complement his game around him. And I just never thought he was an ideal fit here at Florida, but it was no argue just like people arguing about Marco Wilson's athleticism, it's not really a point in my mind as much as it is a a contention of of where he is in a basketball program, if that's going to get the most out of him. And you saw that. But unfortunately, uh, the other night, last night, it was not really his best performance. And and I do think that they suffered for that because they would have needed, as we saw, everyone to have maybe the best game of of their life against that Baylor defense. Because this is a Baylor team that came out – I was doing a podcast last night and missed, I think, the first seven minutes. And I'm talking to these guys, and they asked me who I picked. And I said, oh, I picked Baylor. And they, they are kind of like, what, Baylor? Baylor? And they're not big basketball guys. But I think the con- consensus pick was that Gonzaga was going to do it, which I understand that. Um, and, and I have a lot of friends who follow college basketball, I think you could say loosely, that kind of missed this Baylor ascension really in the last you could say I think we could say 10 years maybe a little bit longer just the way that they've consistently been able to win 25 games a season here I think a lot of people did not understand how good they were and that showed you know I had I was the only one in my 13 person bracket challenge to pick Baylor to cut down the nets and I was a little bit surprised about that in retrospect because I mean, it's easy to sit back here and say, well, obviously Baylor was the better team here. They look at who they played. and and But no one, I, I think, that really thought that they were the favorite the other night. I mean, you, in February, in the second week of February, you could have put down $150 on Baylor to win the title, and that would have netted you more than, I, I think, $1,800 based on their odds, were. I think plus 750 at the time. I mean, when they had the week of that, that COVID pause there were people who were saying oh man this is this is a team where they lose so and so and so they're not going to make it and this was a strange year where once you saw a team at full strength I think we had a good gauge and last night was a a perfect through all the imperfections of the season the shutdowns last night was actually a a microcosm of, of the two best teams that we had really been waiting I said this to Eric last night two years I hope that we never have to wait another Uh, two years for an NCAA tournament, but it really was kind of a perfect um, waiting to see who had been this best team since two years ago.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I agree. Maybe we never have to wait two years for March madness uh, again. And yeah, I mean, look, I picked Baylor, like I said, and then as the tournament went on, I was still a little nervous. And then I saw them in the national semifinal and was like, Oh, they're back. Um, I mean, they had played that marvelous game in Morgantown against West Virginia uh, that I think, you know, we didn't know how. I think it did Baylor a lot of good because it showed them that they could beat a really good team uh, after the COVID pause, but they still hadn't kind of like put it all together um, until the semifinal. And then, yeah, I mean, I felt for Andrew, like you guys were saying struggles against really athletic teams, right? Like same thing again, uh, last night kind of reared its head, uncharacteristic dribbling errors um, by him. I mean, there's a reason that they started him over Suds is because he's a far better ball handler and um, wasn't really last night. So kind of a, a tough one for, for Andrew, for sure. Um, the, the, you know, my takeaway on Baylor that, and I think this is important, as we kind of transition back to Florida a little bit uh, it's that the portal works, right. Um, That, and, and like if Florida fans, Florida fans that listen to the show that have followed the program for a long time, they know this because they know the value that transfers have had at Florida for over a decade, whether it's Vernon Macklin, uh, Mike Rosario, Dorian Finney-Smith, I mean, Billy Donovan was always bringing guys in. Uh, people were always leaving Billy's program uh, to to find a better fit, and you know, Billy was a master at at making those transfers part of the team. And guys like Dorian that won SEC six Man of the Year, obviously, the year Florida went to the Final Four. Uh, Mike Rosario finishes second uh, in in the voting for that award. Uh, Vernon Macklin, a really integral piece on an elite eight team. If Vernon doesn't foul out, does Florida win another national title? Um, You know, I I would have liked Florida against either of those teams, UConn or Butler. Uh, UConn certainly in that national title game. still think Florida would have stomped Shaka and VCU in the Final Four, just like Butler did. So um, anyway, that's a whole like rabbit hole you could go down. But the point being, Billy used to talk about battle scars and how teams learn from losing. And you learn a lot about who you are if you stay together. Uh, And I do think that that issue of program continuity is a huge issue at Florida that that I think Mike would like to correct and that all of us would like to see a team that played together for a little while. But these guys, a lot of them transfers Eric. They find a new home, but they stay there. They lose some tough games together, right? I mean, think about a couple of years ago when they had the three-game lead in – early February in the big 12 and managed to cough up the league title to Kansas, uh, in the final two games of the season. Like think about the battle scars for those guys, um, that kind of emerged and, and came out of that. And you just saw them in this NCAA tournament, like just not phased by anything. Um, and just a real collection of winners and, and a wonderful roster build, uh, by Scott drew using the portal. Also, some recruiting, but uh, certainly his a lot of his key pieces, portal pieces.
1: Yeah, it's got me fired up for the portal. There's no question. I say we uh, we let us start talking about these guys that 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 Florida got. I mean, uh, I, I I am glad you mentioned that uh, that this is something that shows that the the portal works because. Uh, man, I mean, there's been some fair criticisms uh, of Mike White and uh, his tenure and, and what is him and his staff have done. Uh, I just think that, uh, you know, building through the portal is is not one of them. I, I think it's so smart and it's something that uh, that I would do if I was a coach. And that's what I would do to, to advise a coach in their situation. I think it's brilliant what they're doing. And uh, yeah, really glad that they were able to uh, to start the offseason with uh, with two really good acquisitions.
2: Yeah, I think the portal, like you guys said, there are a lot of people i I think who don't fully understand it and so when you see the name transfer I think that it makes still people who are not following it day-to-day pause a little bit and say well this is not good this must be a recruiting failure something we are lacking in a sense it's an admission that you need a, a band-aid it's kind of like going to the hospital in a sense for your program you got to go in and get a, you know a, an, an IV in a sense because your programs you know dehydrated you're missing something here I think people tend to just overreact, and they also think, and this isn't their fault, that a transfer means that a guy's going to have to come in, take up a spot, and sit out. I don't think many people fully realize that it's basically uh, a free pass right now from the NCAA. I know that we haven't got to the formal portion right now where the NCAA moves towards the one-time uh, free transfer waiver, but I think we all agree that that is coming and it's it's kind of like a, a pseudo-informal process right now where the NCAA due to COVID-19 is giving out el- immediate eligibility to a lot of guys unless they've transferred pretty much already or for some reason have something that comes up in their their waiver, but pretty much you're seeing a lot of guys get cleared as we saw with Andrew Nemhard this year and, and as we saw with Colin Castleton this year. I think that you're seeing that be used more and more and more because it is basically like recruiting. You're getting a guy who can come into the program and take up a certain amount of years, and in most cases, less than four in in just about every single case. And so it really just doesn't tie you to one player for too long. And knowing that that player then has the freedom, if they don't work out, to leave your roster, go to a mid-major school, maybe go to the Summit League and do a Summit League swap, you know that they have that avenue now So that you can take a few more risks with recruiting Uh, guys like Osayo, CIFO, Quez Glover. I mean, let's be honest. If those guys were forced to be at Florida or had to be at Florida for four years, I think that you could absolutely be more critical of the decisions now in retrospect to take both of those guys, knowing that you now lose two of your signees in back-to-back classes, but knowing that you can replace them with guys who averaged 17 and, and four uh, for a team for the last four years and made the all defense team, it really is not really much looked at as uh, who you lose and who you add. As much of it is as how did you replace who departed. And if we're sitting here looking at who Florida has lost right now, the two additions that they have added, CJ Felder and Brandon McKissick, you know, no, no disrespect to Omar Payne and Quez Glover, but if you were saying that those are the two replacements for those guys, I would agree. Now, replacing Brandon McKissick for Noah Locke, which does seem to be the more um, one-for-one addition you could say right now, I think that is, we're going to have to see how that works out. It's kind of like grading an NFL draft pick um, right away when they're taken or or, or a trade when it involves picks. You're just going to have to see how it works out, because I think McKissick could be extremely, extremely good. Um, for this team, but we know that there are some concerns. Free throw shooting, uh, turnovers, absolutely, um, were issues there uh, at UMKC. So really, it's, it's going to be a have-to-wait-and-see approach right now, but based on the way that Omar Payne and Quez Glover finished the season, it, it, I think that you could say right now that those are good swaps, but as you know, Eric and Neil, there's still work to be, to be done here for this program over the coming weeks, uh, plenty of it. They're, they, they're just getting started.
1: Yeah I mean so many uh, so many spots open uh, man uh, I I was just kind of thinking like oh it's good they got those first two transfers out of the way early because uh, uh, yeah it'd be nice to like sprinkle like a nice even like one every couple of weeks here what maybe one a month for this offseason at least from a content standpoint but uh, but Neil how about we talk uh, Brandon McKissick first what do you
0: uh, what do you think about him as a player? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's a good place to start. Graham mentioned some of – there are some things that you you have some reservations about. Um, You know, not really going to be the point guard. Um, Certainly, if you want to cure some of the turnover deficiencies, I don't know if he's necessarily uh, the guy to do that. I do think he's a a pretty strong uh, defensive player. Um, at least he was in his league, obviously to be defensive player of the year in his league. That's that's very good. He's very active defensively. Um you know, led his conference in steals. So uh, I think that certainly helps uh Florida and, and then I, you know, only attempted seventy three point shots, which isn't as high a volume as I expected when I went and looked at his numbers, but when you when you shoot forty three percent, um, you know, that's three percent better than Noah Locke was this season. Um, whatever was going on with Noah, that you know, you gotta take it if that's your your like for like uh if he's your Noah lock replacement. Um, the one other thing that I would add to the kind of reservations, and, and it, don't get me wrong, I'm high on the kid. I think this is a really good get for them. He had twenty-four in their win over or UMKC beat Oral Roberts. He had twenty four points, eight assists in that game. So he can obviously pass and create for his teammates as well. Uh all those things are good. Um and, and I think I might have actually forgot, well, it's that he's a senior, that he's a grad transfer. And this gets back to my Baylor thing. I think that what they'd like to do, and they got it with C.J. Felder, is find balance where they're getting a couple guys who are going to be in the program for longer than a year, um, whereas Brandon McKinnon is just sort of, we need this guy to come in and score points.
1: Yeah, I do think they're probably going to see him as – uh, well at least uh, yeah we'll see what they do with the other uh, spots i guess but uh, right now I do think that you could kind of pencil him in as the as starting two uh, I, I I don't think he's a true point guard. he definitely had a couple of those games with uh uh with some big assist numbers uh watching him play I, I don't think he's a great passer um I don't think he's a bad passer um but uh and he's another guy that was high turnover. Um, and looking at his turnovers, like they are, like, I do think he has like turnover problems. If, if that makes sense, like, again, like Tyree Appleby was someone who had a lot of turnovers. Um, I actually defended that. I didn't think he had, you know bad turnover problems. Um I think it was just like you look at his usage rate and his turnover rate was actually low. It was just that his like usage rate was so high. Uh of course we did see that yeah he was definitely prone to a bad turnover once he got to the SEC. But uh, yeah, with, with with McKissick, he's got a couple really bad habits. Um he is someone who he w- one thing that just like really needs to be drilled out of him. You do see this from like younger guards. He's of course an older guard, but he still does this is he leaves his feet on every pass. And that's not like a uh, oh you've got to like crane an angle to get into the roller. You you jump and contort it's just like you know he come off the screen and he's Hitting the the a shooter on the opposite side of the court, he jumps or he's passing it just one pass away. Escape dribble jumps, goes off two feet. He just has this like habit of like jumping every time he passes, um, which is a pretty bad one. Got him in trouble, and and you're just you're losing accuracy every time you leave your feet to try to throw a pass. So uh, a little bit of a, a problem there. And and yeah, the other thing too is I mean he's listed at six three, so I kind of had the impression that I was like, oh yeah, this is gonna be a big point guard or like you know decent si- okay size of the two. Uh, watching him, you know, watching him play, I. I mean, he looked small in the Summit League. I I, I don't think he's six three, um, so that is one of the things too. Where it's like, well, yeah, no, I I don't think he's a point guard. I don't think the staff use him as a point guard. I maybe you know maybe he's a guy who takes backup point guard minutes. I think he'd be certainly capable, but um, I, I think they probably see him as a two and playing alongside Tyree Appleby. So it's like those are two small guards. Um, at least McKissick is some who looks like he's going to be able to guard his position um but uh but yeah I mean one thing I just do really like about McKissick looking at how he got his points uh he's a good shooter off the dribble he was good at getting to the hoop in the the pick and roll he was someone who scored off cuts he was someone who scored off screens um I I really like seeing that he scored in a variety of ways just because again like sometimes you see uh, these mid-major players and and uh that put up a lot of points and then you look at how they got those points and it's like they used the uh they used the pick and roll and they they got to the hoop over and over and over again and scored 15 points a game doing that, it's like, well, like, sorry, but you're probably not going to do that at the SEC level. Uh, but I see that he was able to score in such a variety of ways. And it's like, okay, maybe he's not going to get to the rim at the same level he did in the Summit League, almost certainly won't. But he was an intelligent off ball player and was a really good catch and shoot player. And then I see, okay, there's a few avenues here where I can absolutely see him, uh, see him contributing and contributing well. So uh, that definitely excites me and makes him, uh, I, I, you know, someone maybe easier to project uh, at the SEC level. So uh, definitely a great take to to start off the uh, start-off portal season.
2: Yeah, I'd be surprised if he and Tyree Appleby were the two guards in Florida's backcourt next season just because the way the game and and especially Mike White, you know, not to speak for him necessarily here, but I know that he has liked to move away from a small guard backcourt, just sizing the SEC now for a variety of factors, the way the game is called, uh, just the advantages that sizable guards seem to have. You, you can't really give up that much size in your backcourt if you want to be an elite defensive team, in my opinion. And while I think we all agree that McKissick is a good defender, and, and I would even say an, an upgrade over Noah Locke from the defensive um, side, I, I do think that when we look at one of the big issues of this team last year, the turnovers, um, to have Tyree Appleby and the defensive liabilities of those two give up, to have him and Tyree Appleby in the backcourt together at the same time, I would just, I, that would kind of surprise me right now. Um, I, I do think they'd be better off, you know, stymieing one of each other, at, coming off the bench. And, and we uh, we know, as you guys know it all the time, that, that Mike White loves to rotate. So it's not like they wouldn't both play more than, you know, 20, 25 minutes per game. I just don't know if necessarily that that's the best rotation to have them out there for them. But, you know, Eric, you would obviously, I don't know if you've looked at the advanced analytics of, of how he played with other guards that were around his size or, or guys who were other primary ball handlers, how he did, because we, we just touched on how he transitioned to the point guard position after two years really kind of playing the two spot um, for the first two years at UMKC, the turnovers did go up. So I'd be surprised um, if, if their rotation varied differently, and that's why he kind of was forced into that spot. Um, but I would be surprised right now if just that's kind of general consensus just for me. I'm actually – and maybe this is a good segue here, but I am really intrigued by C.J. Felder's potential, um, especially these next two years. What he showed in his game this last year, I think that he, I think he has great potential in the SEC. If he can keep expanding his three-point shooting, his his shooting from outside the paint, I mean, that's a guy who could be uh, a dynamic front court partner for Colin Castleton if he returns.
1: I think uh, I, I really like the CJ Felder take for sure. Ever since uh, I first kind of started started watching him, I, I was pretty quickly intrigued, and the more I watched, kind of the more I liked. And I, I do think he's a true power forward, and Florida hasn't really had one the last uh, the last couple of seasons. And there's also just not a lot of guys out there that are have the true power forward body and and, and size that can also. Uh, switch out on the perimeter and, and, or handle the ball a little bit. And the things that obviously Mike White has liked out of his guys who play power forward. Uh, but for Mike White to have those guys in the last couple of years, it's kind of been at the expense of, of, of size and, and, uh, rebounding, particularly, I would say. And I think with CJ Felder, yeah, I, someone who's, uh, really big can really defend in the paint on the inside when it comes to just walling up at the paint and being a shot blocker or rim protector and also someone who could switch out and, and, and hang with the guard and stay in phase with the guard for a few bounces. I was really impressed there. Great shot blocker, great rebounder. Uh, there is a lot to like what CJ Felder and, and, uh, yeah, I would definitely love to see his three point percentage I- improve, but he's also a guy that I'm like, Man, if he even never shot another three again, which I don't think would be the case, I'm sure he's going to keep trying to stretch it out. But even say he never shot another three again, I, I still see his ability to, to defend, to rebound, and uh, make some plays off the dribble. Uh, he, he'd be an effective player. He's also someone that um, – so I had a Georgia Tech um, – I think someone on their staff uh, reached out to me um, right after that Florida got him. And uh, and he said, he's just like, yeah, I, I think this is an incredible take. He called him the most underrated player in the ACC. And he also told me, I I, I forget, but he like, just turned 19 like middle of the season. Like he came to campus as a 17 year old. Um, so he's still like really young for a player that already has two, two years of college under him. So uh, whatever, however you want to take that, he could get better at basketball, smarter, uh, more physically developed, whatever you want to say. He's a, he's a young dude who's already shown that he can contribute in the ACC. So uh, yeah, pretty excited about this one.
0: Yeah. Hard not to be excited about CJ Felder. And I would say an upgrade it, I mean, in any of it, either place that you look at him, it's a pretty significant upgrade. If you, if you say he's the Omar Payne replacement, upgrade. If you say he's the Osiah Sifo replacement, upgrade. Um, and and so, you know, really excited about that. Uh, Drew Helmich asked about McKissick if he was identical to Tyree, but a way better defender and worse at free throws. Um, he's a little bit better a shooter, Drew uh than Tyree is the Tyree you know can definitely make those shots off the dribble which is nice and McKissick can can create and do that as well but I think as a pure shooter I would say that McKissick is a little better um I do think he is a better defender I would say Eric encouraged me after the take when I got real hype about his defense to go and look at some of the film and so I did and and I would say uh Eric as often as the case is right like he's not particularly elite side-by-side, side. Uh, moving side-by-side. Side. He also kind of benefits from the Summit League and his ability to kind of run around screens sometimes. I don't know if you saw any of that too, Eric. I think he's going to have trouble fighting through screens a little more in the SEC uh, because he is kind of diminutive. Uh, if he's 6'3", he's 6'3", and he's not Noah Locke 6'3". Um, let's let let's put it at that. So, um, But still, I think a very good defender in that super active, going to help Florida get in the passing lanes. And I do think, you know, he he's quick enough to funnel people towards help, um, which Noah Locke wasn't always.
1: Yeah, I think the thing with McKissick as a defender, and again, I was someone who, you know, heard Summit League Defender of the Year, you know, he's been like a three-time All-League Defender, I think, uh, two or three. Uh, watching him play, yeah, very high-energy defender, uh, definitely – takes a lot of pride on that end you'd love to see that i just think like yeah he's pretty small like i said um i don't think he's 6'3 and i don't think he's like while he's very you know he is very quick i i don't think like laterally he has great bursts and um there, there's actually so so i said this to um to jim root actually from uh, three-man weave i was kind of talking to him up because he just like follows all these big major leagues and is super knowledgeable so i first asked kind of his thought and, and i first told him i'm like hey i i don't think he's a he's a great defender what is what is your thoughts on that and he's he was like oh well that's Pretty weird because UMKC's, I forget his coach, but they're like, oh, his coach is just an outstanding defender who has, or defensive coach who has a great reputation. As I watched more, something that kind of stuck out to me was that they definitely played a little bit more of the pack line sitting in gaps, which helped McKissick for two reasons. Uh, The first was uh, I think he was incredible one pass away in that style of defense because he was so so quick he was able to to go and like stunt into those passing lanes and be a very good one pass away help defender so i thought he was awesome in that scheme i think that might be relevant for florida because we saw them starting to go to that style of defense uh when they were struggling to guard one-on-one uh they needed to help in the gaps a little bit more and tyree appleby is still on the basketball team so they might think to themselves oh we're going to need to play a little bit more in the gaps." so to see mckissick play really well in that style as a help defender uh i think that that could be pretty encouraging Uh, uh, but the other side of that was I think that McKissick also had a lot of support, and there was times where I thought he – like, again, he didn't get, like, clean blowed by, but I did think he kind of got d- driven by, and because this team played so well in the gaps and had such control of angles that I thought he kind of got his mistakes covered up really well. So, I, I again, I think that people see, oh, guard who – you know, again, you see, like, the SEC, for example, so often you see um, the the defensive player of the year is either a big or, like, a long wing and that's just because I think oftentimes those players are just more suited to having a defensive impact on the game so I think you look at a guard like McKissick and you say oh a guard who uh a guard who was the the defensive player of the the year he's probably oh he could just put him on an island and he's just clamps a guy down and that just uh, was maybe what I was expecting and that is uh that is not the case so his on-ball defense not as good as I expected off-ball defense better than I expected so I, again, i I don't think I don't think he's going to come to Florida and be an outstanding defender. Maybe he will. I'd be happily wrong, um, but I think you can start to say, like, well, is this guy uh, an improvement over a Noah Locke defensively? I'd probably guess yes.
2: The contrast between on ball and off ball defense for guys I find very interesting because when you have a guy who does not understand. Off-ball defense, where to be, just where the other team is attempting to move the ball and what they're attempting to accomplish. When you don't have a guy who, who, who is easily fooled, it really is a liability because it just creates anxiousness for everyone else out there on the court. And that is probably McKissick's best strength is that he makes up for what he lacks with being an on-ball defender with what you just said. His sense of what the other team is attempting to accomplish and his direction on the court for the other players. I mean, we aren't privy to sound bites. I wish that that was included, but I wish we could hear the direction that, that these guards and how they're vocal on the court, because that has to be something that when these coaches are hitting the transfer portal, you know, you can get everything in a sense from the film, because the film doesn't lie, but finding out more about a player involves calling the coach. And I think that's got to be one of the first questions out of the mouth of coaches when they're asking about a player's defense is, is, how do they make up for the other teams, the other four guys around them, the other guy's faults, directing other guys, telling them what to do, queuing them in. If he's doing that out there on the court, I think that's much more valuable than anything that he gives up by being six foot one and a half or, or whatever he actually weighs in here as I think that necessarily, if he has active hands as a defender, is able to read passing lades. I mean, I, I don't think that many people are, are going to be as frustrated about that as what he gives up from a genetics standpoint, um, because he is the the stuff that he can control. He's making up for it or attempting to make up for it. And as you saw with Tyree Appleby, the energy that a player can give off in both ends of the court does seem to be contagious at times, because we've seen before Appleby really arrived here, before Anthony DeRuji was on this roster, I think that there was some slow, archaic at at times movement on defense where guys just really didn't have active hands. And and when you have a guy who is playing above their size on the defensive end, it really makes you want to try harder. So if McKissick can install a little more defensive toughness, I hate to use that cliche in a sense, but if he can bring defensive toughness, that mentality with him, there will be some guys who absolutely benefit from that because I was, the, while we're talking about transfers, I, I was saying, I, you know, I keep saying, hey, I said this to Eric, you know, so I'll get, have to message you as well, Neil, but I, I was saying when we were talking about transfers, losing the guys that they lost doesn't hurt as much as losing as, as if you had lost Niles Lane or Samson Reshensa, because I think both of those guys have their best basketball ahead of them. I, I hate words like the yips and, and stuff like that, but the overwhelming... Amount of factors that were involved in helping Samson and Niles adapt to the game just really made it, I think, nearly impossible for them to be an actual have an actual role on this team last year. And we know that Niles is a far better defender than he has shown. And if anything kept him from being on the court last year, it was kind of being lost in team defense and in the flow of the offense. So if he can fix one of those or get back to where he was more say um, from a defensive toughness standpoint that we we saw when he was at Roselle. I I think that that would be huge for this team because it really is benefiting one of your homegrown talents in a sense one of the guys that you signed who who you don't want to lose in the transfer portal after next year because they continue to have forward progression.
0: That's a really interesting thought on Niles Lane as it relates to team defense, just because his like one-on-one numbers are so good. And so it's interesting to hear like that maybe the staff had some concerns about how he fit in schematically. And like he was fine as a guy who was going to defend Jaden Springer one-on-one, right? Um, And we all know that he can lock up your best player. And he showed flashes of that and what little time he played. But, you know, if there was a team defense deficit from a staff standpoint, that's interesting because that that, – you know, he certainly has the tool set to make Florida much better defensively immediately with, with more minutes next season, Eric. Yeah. I think that
1: there's definitely times where you do just like need that guy. You can guard one-on-one and that's still where we were just like really wishing that, that he'd be out there. Because again, it was like those games where you're up against Scotty Pippen junior. It was like, you know, I don't think that it was maybe any, any deficiencies Niles Lane might've had as a, as a help defender that, would, would have maybe concerned us. It's just like, man, Scottie Pippen Jr. has zero respect for Scottie Lewis as a defender and is just going at him to his right hand over and over and over again. So those are the times where I do think it was like, man, you know, I I, I stand by our decisions to, uh, or our, our, you know, are calling for, for Niles Lane to get in those situations. But, uh, you, you know, I'm really interested too, kind of, Graham, like you alluded to. Um, so, you know, I kind of said, well, I think you can probably pencil in McKissick as, as a starter right now. And, and you kind of pointed out, like, I don't know how much Mike White wants to play Two small guards together, um, so it's going to be really interesting for for a Niles Lane. Can he get in that competition for for starting two guard? Can his defense? Can his rebounding? Um, can you get him in that con- kind of conversation? Uh, as Florida wants to play bigger and longer, you know Sampson or Sensev as well. If we, it, it, I, I would love so much for Florida to have someone who's six foot seven playing playing the three versus someone who's six foot two or six foot five that's played the three for the last three years because it's been Scotty Lewis or, or Noah Locke. Um, or Kayvon Allen or whatever you want to say back when when those two guys were playing the two and three. So, uh, yeah, I, I would really love for that to work out. So it'll be really interesting to see that competition. And uh, so I do think it's interesting you pointed that out, Graham, that, yeah, I don't I don't know if that's that's totally in, in Florida's plan to want to play two small guards a, a bunch. So, yes, yeah, at least as the roster is currently constructed, which is, you know, asterisks times 100 because there's so much more room to, to bring in more guys. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, it's, uh, I, I do think that Niles Lane has to kind of look at how things are shaping up, looking at where Florida's deficiencies were. And I think the Florida's coaching staff has to look at their deficiencies last year and say, uh, Hey, maybe a physical six foot five, you know, 205 or whatever Niles Lane was. Uh, may, maybe that's the guy we, we, uh, we could see starting some minutes at the, at the two next year.
2: Yeah, I could absolutely see that. You know, I, I thought when even when he arrived here, we were, you know, I kind of thought I was jumping the gun a little bit, but we kind of were proved correct here when I thought that, I thought that Niles, when he arrived, was an, a better on-ball defender than Scotty Lewis. And and I know that, you know, I, I didn't repeat that publicly. I, I said it to you because I thought it was a little bit bold at the time, but you watched his film and that term active hands, he, he had a sense just knowing where his – matchup was going to attempt to go with the ball at all times where he often would be there moving his feet, having his hands set where he was in a position to cut off the, his, his, the opposition before he really, before the other guy had a chance to react. And, and you didn't see that last year. And I don't know whether it was confidence or it was the game. You know, people love to say that the game is quicker. It's going to catch you. And if you don't have a full chance to actually build up, to it in the off season. And we know how few scrimmages this team really had between June and November. If they had more full team scrimmages, a chance for him to actually get a chance to play with the entire roster. I think we forget that they only had what, three full team practices. They didn't have actually one practice with all 13 guys before they started um, the season. So we know that that was probably hindering his development as well, his adjustment to the game, and we saw a much better Niles, like I said, in, in mid-February, where I really thought you saw a lot of those things return, and if he can get his shot to be, I think it was promising in his senior year, but I do think that he kind of progressed a little bit trying to do too much, make a few corrections, which we've seen in the past, where a guy comes into the league and, and they believe that they have to make some adjustments to their shooting form and go away from what kind of got them to this point, and then their their motion and their gather are a little bit slower and then they lose a little bit confidence in that and with niles you saw him out there for an hour to 30 minutes because we have to do media you know sitting there facing the court but we saw niles coming out immediately after the tunnel after they talked every single home game this season would shoot three pointers free throw shots working on his motion he was the only one out there at times so His determination to get on the court next season, I would not doubt that whatsoever. And I think we saw glimpses over the last three weeks. I mean, he was out there, I believe, in that Virginia Tech game when Trey Mann had to hit the step back in overtime. I mean, I think that Niles was out there on the court and, um, you you know, not to call him out here, but I think that he was the one who actually kind of ran the wrong play there that made Trey kind of have to pull up for the shot there but if he can continue to improve offensively the jump that you saw in February I do think long long answer here I do think he contests for the number two spot next year because I just don't think necessarily that they would it would behoove them to start two guys under six foot three rather than bringing a veteran guard off the bench if you can bring a senior point guard off the bench to lead your second unit that was often what I think hurt Florida not only this season but last year I was in lsu last year when florida was up 30 to 20 and had to go to quez glover in the backcourt and when you you know what i'm talking about lsu came out and ran a full court press and i think florida turned it over four straight times and, and that turned the tide right there you know i was so frustrated having driven nine hours to that game and to see that happen you know that that i can't remember thinking hey with a backup point guard the ability to slow it down that's when they should have been able to push the pace but if they had slowed it down with a backup point guard in that sense I, I would have been pretty impressed but they didn't have that last year if they can get that next year I think that this team will be far better off in, in the second unit
0: I mean can we talk about being up 34 to 18 in Knoxville with a double buy on the line and Trey Mann's got a migraine and you know having Brandon McKissick turnover prone or not would have been a pretty nice thing to have uh, so, you know, when you put it that way, that's a great point, Graham. And I, and I like the comment about Lane's work ethic, I think, is something that we've all heard um, from various. I mean, you've seen it uh, being there to in the media capacity. I know Eric and I have heard it from people in the program. I'm just a kid that's relentless in his work ethic. Um, and I do think it's a great point. The, th- the three COVID pauses were damaging to Samson, who we really haven't discussed, and Lane, because they didn't get the non-conference games, right. That are so huge for guys like that. I mean, they had the one game against Stetson where they got a lot of minutes. That's about it. Um, cause Florida had to play everybody to beat army. Uh, cause they were so rusty cause they'd only had three practices um, and they didn't get any of the, those games. Then Keontae almost dies. And so then they don't, touch a basketball for two weeks, and then they go right into conference play. So not only did they tie for the national lead in COVID pauses, but they had the Keontae situation. Uh, So it's just a minute very hard for freshmen. And some of the yips, I think, you know, you can blame the staff if you want. I think to some extent with a guy who's as good one-on-one defensively as Lane is, you know, maybe some more minutes would have been made some sense. Um, uh, But in any event, it's hard to get in the flow as a freshman offensively when you're never playing. And like Lane is a guy who has like kind of that Casey Prather offensive skill set, right? Like he's going to slash and attack the ten and get fouled cuz he's got a nice frame. And I think it's going to be more about initiating that contact and getting to the free throw line for him and then he's got to figure out like Casey did how to shoot 75% at the free throw line by year 3 and year 4, right? But I still think he has that all-SEC Prather ceiling. Um, and then Resensev, I mean, I know Eric just loves his athleticism, uh, loves the stroke. I mean, I I wouldn't be stunned if he came and shot the ball so much better next year as a sophomore, uh, which we saw Trey Mann, a really good shooter do. Eric? Yeah, well, uh, I think it's
1: just going to be up to, again, who's kind of at that, that two-guard spot because um, – Again, I know we're talking Niles Lane here and that would be, that'd be great. But uh, let's say, like, let's say it's uh, McKissick at the two, or someone in a similar vein of McKissick who can handle the ball and create some and score. So you have two guards out there that that can create and score. Well, then it makes a lot of sense, I think, at the three to have uh, just a great spot up shooter, just a great catch and shoot guy. And I think that Samson or Sensev can be that guy. I, I think we saw when he had a little bit more of a regular shift that he was, you know, hitting forty percent of his threes, and uh, that's something too. With like again, uh, Graham's like I hate to use the word yips, and now we've just like you said the word yips like 30 times and i'm gonna say it but here's the thing about the yips i mean like yeah like you know when when niles lane sits for close to an hour of real time uh or longer i mean times where he he warms up for a you know seven o'clock eastern game and then uh goes for the anthem at six fifty six, and then doesn't see the floor until after halftime and it's 8 10 like yeah he's gonna be ice cold i'm like yeah that would give anyone the yips i bet if you put noah lock on the bench for an hour and 10 of, of real time. And then he had to go out there and, and take a shot. Like, yeah, he might have the yip. So, uh so again, I, you know, uh, whether it's a mental thing or whether it's just like, man, yeah, getting stiff on, on the bench, that's, that's tough. That's tough to come to the game. And, and I do think that's the case for, for Lane and Recensa, but, but yeah, so, so I do think like, yeah, if it's, um, if maybe it's McKissick and, and Appleby, then it's like, yeah, you could totally get away with a uh with a Samson Russian at the three. But uh if it is a Niles Lane at the two, and uh we'll see how much again of of Niles Lane's kind of ball handling skill might be there that we did see in high school a little bit. Uh maybe you need someone at the three who can provide a, a little bit more ball handling than than of has shown right now, but uh uh but we'll see. But I don't know. I, I guess we I, I don't even remember how we got down this trail, but uh uh, was it was there any I, I did ever get their Felder takes in did did uh, who's 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 left on Felder? I, I, w-
0: I wanted to go listener question on Felder um, and so it just seemed like a good way to sprinkle in a listener question and it's from uh, Sarah in Tampa so I know we gotta we gotta get into to her questions because she always asks such good ones so um, she says you guys talked on the last podcast that Cavarius Hayes was really the key to how Florida wants to play defensively as a program. Does CJ Felder provide any of that? Really oh, good that's, question.
1: That's an awesome question. She has the best questions and that's not a, any exaggeration. I'm going to say no. Not inherently. The thing that Cavarius Hayes did that made that allowed Florida to play the way they wanted to was like, 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 again, here's the thing is the the fact of the matter is in college basketball, the average team is taking 26% of their shots out of the screen and roll. It's a massive, massive part of the game. And Florida wants to hedge and recover screen and roll and Cavarius Hayes allowed them to do that. Uh, They haven't had players that have really fit that that style of, of, of play recently. And, and do I think that CJ Felder could provide some of that defense? Uh, yes, but I do think he's a four. And I think that inherently teams are going to put centers into those actions and not CJ Felder. So if we imagine Colin Castleton and CJ Felder out there, um, then I, I I still think it's going to be Colin Castleton guarding all these screen and rolls unless you do some triple switching or some scram switching that's pretty high level pick and roll those early switches to to the ball you don't really see them at college um for good reason there it's a tough way to play defense so so again I I don't think that Felder inherently does that in a way that that Kavarius Hayes did uh but it certainly can't hurt because again maybe they feel a little bit more like again there was there was times where Florida got into trouble these last two years even with Castleton who I think I I think Castleton played the defense pretty well, um, whereas I don't think Kerry Blackshear did. I think Castleton did. There's just holes to playing that style of defense that teams are able to exploit. But again, there was times where Castleton hedged fine, hedge played it really well. But again, so on the, on the backside of the defense, playing hedging ball screen, you're 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 going to get in some situations where you've got to guard three using two players or four guarding three players. Uh, Anthony DeRuji didn't uh, didn't always provide the most stout interior defense. If it got a deep post-touch against DeRuji, he kind of got pushed out of there. So, it, again, if that turns into C.J. Felder a little bit more, uh, then, yeah, maybe you're you're feeling a little bit better about stringing out that pick-and-roll defense with hard hedges, and that's obviously, again, what, what Mike White has shown he wants to do. So, so I'll say that Felder gets them in the direction of what Kavarius Hayes did, but I don't think it's
0: a straight, straight swap. I like it. Graham, I'm going to ask you another listener question because we're, I think if we tried to build on that, we'd just look silly. (laughs) Um, So, but, but don't, don't discount this. This comes from a championship winning and I don't mean like state championship. I mean like prep championship, the kind you see on ESPN high school coach uh, and, and longtime listener who has had players, at the Florida program. And this is all the description I was allowed to give when this one appeared in my DMS. Uh, but he says, Neil, here's a question for the podcast. Most established programs have an identity. What is Florida's identity? Does the lack of a clear cut identity, identity indicate a coach who is still trying to figure out, at the, figure it out at the high major level. That's okay. But he's gone on record saying that playing fast is in his DNA. We have seen little evidence of that over the past two years. We also know he is a defensive-minded coach, but this year's team was porous at times, particularly guarding the ball. Thoughts? I said, this is a Graham Hall question. I'm teeing him up.
2: That's, that's good. You're putting me on the spot here. You know, I think that there are people who to answer the question, they believe that Mike White's teams lack identity. And maybe this is a PR-type answer here, but maybe the identity is is malleability because we see coaches all the time you know Dan Mullen comes out and says that every single year if you follow him well well what's your offensive scheme it's about putting my players in the best position to be successful and that's kind of a cop out answer in, in, in a sense here because you know give a straight up answer you are basically saying that every single year it's going to be open to change based on your your players but i think that really is there's some desirability towards that. You don't want a coach who necessarily has an established scheme where they're only going to look at every single year a limited amount of players. Because in college basketball, injuries, transfers, you're going to be having to make up multiple multiple aspects of your team every single year. So you can't necessarily assume that you're only going for one thing. And one year you may struggle with turnovers in defense like Florida, two aspects that I think were. Before this this year, I, I don't necessarily think you could say that Florida was a, a bad defensive team, especially when they had Keontae Johnson the last couple of years. You know, I saw people talking about Davion Mitchell being the best two-way basketball player in college basketball, and all I could think about is maybe if Keontae Johnson had played a full year, maybe he has a, a state to that argument. No disrespect to, to Mitchell whatsoever, but that's just really what Florida is at right now. It's hard to sit here and say three months ago that they're searching for a new identity when... They, they lost a significant threat in the front court, and they lost a guy who was probably their best offensive uh, o- option outside of, you know, Trey Mann there late in the season in Keontae Johnson. So I, I think that necessarily in a long answer here, it, being able to reassess your roster every single year and find out what you need is, is really, I think, what Mike White has going for him well right now. Because... The addition of Colin Castleton, before that, Canyon Barry, I think he has hit on the transfer portal with filling some of the holes that Florida has had every single year more often than not. you know We are talking about issues that Florida had when they doubled in the post. I don't think we would have seen that a lot with Keontae Johnson playing the four for most of the year. I don't think they would have had to do that as much as they did later in the season. And if Colin Castleton had had just come into this team – and everyone had stayed healthy, I think we would have been talking about a team that really found the missing piece, missing link, whatever you want to say, that they were missing from last year's team, a, a front court presence that they've really missed sorely for several years. So the ability to go out there, identify what you need, and get that is probably what Mike White has going for him really well. But outside of that, I, I think you could make the case right now that there's been so much variability and drop-off in things that we thought were going to be consistent year-to-year things, uh, increasing the tempo, defense. I, I think you could say that, that you thought that that would be something that year-to-year, that was a Florida identity thing for a long time. And the drop-up that we've seen the last two years is really kind of surprising in my mind. And, and then the turnovers, you know, people love to say to me, well, Florida, you know, never runs any sets. That's ludicrous because they're they're the most efficient offense, I think, by the numbers. Um, one of them in the most in the sec, I know they're certainly what 45th in the country there in offensive efficiency to finish the season. I mean, you don't do that with the amount of turnovers that Florida had without being able to create open shots in the half court. And the way that Florida did that this season, they weren't perfect. I think that you could say that they really adapted really well, especially in those offensive transitions. So I'm not someone who really is as critical of the offensive game plan as most. I I do think that most of the issues that this team had was ones that they couldn't necessarily overcome the loss of Keontae Johnson, because we would be sitting here having a much different conversation. If they had played the whole year with him, I think that people would be sitting here saying, Hey, we saw we were missing last year from 19 wins and we added it in Colin Castleton. You only get one shot sometimes with the transfer portal and to go out there and land the right guy is, I think, extremely undervalued.
0: So, I want to get into. I think that's a, a very good answer uh, to a portion of the question, and I and I want to ask Eric the follow up question. That's also a listener question, um, and that was from uh, William Norris, who says on the podcast you both have criticized Florida at times for not having a true identity. Do you think the transfers and maybe some of the targets who haven't decided? paint a better picture of what Florida wants to do next year. And I thought there's an Eric Fossett question.
1: well I do think it's pretty interesting because like yeah CJ Felder is someone who uh, has stepped out and shot the three a little bit and been a little stretchy not not great his percentages aren't awesome but I mean I look at him and I do look at like a little bit more of a traditional power forward like uh, again like he's still going to stretch it out a little bit he can handle the ball a little bit so um, yes he's still a little more modern but like uh, again those have been that's that's been the player that that Florida has not been really able to get, or I would say, been uninterested in getting. Largely, um, again, this probably the whole time that uh, Keontae Johnson's been on campus. Like I would look at him as a three, and Mike White the entire time has looked at him as as a four, and I can totally understand understand why. And that's not like a ridiculous kind of, uh, yeah, it's not ridiculous. But again, um, I, I I think that that just shows like. Oh, like Felder is a guy that like Florida hasn't had really anything similar to that. And that's pretty interesting that they go after him hard, go after him early and, and end up getting him. And then uh, again, something that I've always complained about uh, is the fact that Florida has had a, a lack of ball handlers and whether it's guys that could be on the court alongside a true point guard, or it's like Graham alluded to where it's like, okay, you're one of your great point guards, whether it's, uh, I, I mean, I think Graham, you alluded to uh, last year with with uh, with LSU, but it's like, man, it was like even back to uh back to uh even the Chris Chiosa days with like Eric Hester or Michael Ocaru or like like there was those times where it was Kayvon Allen playing backup point guard and just because there wasn't any other option. So so yeah the, the, there's been kind of deficiencies there. And again, so to see them go after uh go after more of those guys. And I think that even the, the players that Florida didn't ultimately end up getting it's, it's a whole lot of ball handlers. So, so I do think that, uh, yeah, the, the way that Florida has gone after some guys that are a little bit, a little bit different than, than what they've had on the roster uh, these last couple of years. Um, I think it could show that they're changing what they, uh, the way that they, they want to play. So of course, again, it's like, I think we'll have a way better answer for that question in like a month or two when they, when
0: they fill some more spots though. So, uh, I look forward to discussing it then. So um, I think we should do one more listener question before we wrap up and, and always good to have Graham Hall on Florida basketball hour. Um, so it was kind of hard and we're going to answer because like Eric mentioned at the top of the show, I think season review part four is just around the corner of the way all this is going. Uh, so, so I really wouldn't uh, worry about that. Uh, but I like this question from UF Gator Mike, who asks, with Mann and others leaving, does Florida have enough offense on the roster to compete for the SEC, or do they still need some guys to help via transfer? Uh, McKissick and Felder seem like defensive first guys. Obviously we want to get better defensively, but are there targets they're looking at that that might make them better on offense? I'll start with this. And I wanted to circle, and, and I'm only taking it first, not to be selfish, but I wanted to circle back to something that Graham said about Keontae Johnson. And I think I may have mentioned it kind of briefly on another podcast. Um, And I always do it at the end when people have turned off the show or put me on fast forward. And that's cool. Um, But uh, what I would say is that Florida lost an all American in like the fourth game of the season who, while not their primary scorer and while not really a guy you necessarily design your offense to go, through, you might build what you want to do schematically around him. Um, and I do think that there's a little bit of a difference, but uh, in, in any event, it's amazing. The only thing that's been discouraging, because I, I actually think Eric asked me last week about apathy in the program and what cures that. And I think watching Twitter the last couple of weeks, I'm no longer concerned about apathy. Like there is passion, there is anger, People are riled up. People want to get better. People go from being furious one day to really happy the next day when two really good transfers come in. Um, So I think there's still some passion out there for Florida basketball. Uh, And I think we saw that resoundingly. What I would say is that Florida really did have unprecedented adversity compared to the rest of the country um, this season. And so, wow, there's all sorts of things you can criticize – another thing that kind of has to be understood is that when you lose a guy like Keontae Johnson, who's probably one of the best players in the country uh, there's going to be some, some stumbling blocks because what you're doing then is having to piece together a roster you did not intend to play with um, because you intended to have Keontae Johnson. Uh, and, And so that's a lot different. And it was discouraging to see some people say, well, that's not that big a deal when in December, a lot of these same folks were tweeting things like it doesn't even matter if they play the rest of the season. All that matters is that Keontae gets well, like there is a disconnect between those two schools of thought. And and I get that Keontae is getting better and we're seeing that, but I just kind of feel like that's an important thing to point out. Um, you know, as we evaluate the season that was in terms of what Florida is targeting. I think McKissick is probably going to be a guy they rely on to score a little more. He can score. Um, but in terms of other people, I know that they're targeting, uh, you know, I really like Micah Peavy. There's people that think he's going to go to Baylor. Maybe there's some people who think he's looking at Illinois. Uh, obviously Illinois has a lot to replace, Um, But they just added Omar Payne, so they're well on their way uh, back to a one seed. Um, You know, I think Micah Peavy would be, like, my favorite guy that they're targeting, quite honestly. Just an athletic wing, visited Florida officially. Uh, Not the best shooter in the world, in my opinion, Eric. But um, certainly somebody that can create, that can attack a closeout. Uh, that can get a rebound, that can get nasty defensively and bother people with his length. Just seems kind of like a Mike White player. Probably why he almost came to Florida to begin with. Um, so that would be a really, really good ad. I like him more than Davon Smith, who's a top fifty kid from Miss State and a AAU team that Florida's had a lot of success with. Uh guys in Atlanta, DeAndre Ballard, same AAU group. Um, you know, you don't have to shudder. I think Davon's a, a better basketball player and was top 50 for a reason. Um, but another really small guard to Graham Hall's point. Yeah, I think Marion Jones from, uh, from Penn State is a
1: name that uh, is probably the, I don't want to say best, most accomplished on, on, on Florida's uh, kind of radar right now. He just uh, gave his, uh, well, he gave his final five schools, um, all of which were SEC schools. And then he, uh, and then Alabama went off him. So he was left with only four SEC schools so yeah when it comes to transfers uh, it just means more here and uh, uh, leaving the big 10 for the SEC it's a good it's a good move but yeah 15 point per game score for Penn State uh, Penn State was a really interesting team um, they're actually one spot better. so they were 11 and 14 they were but they were one spot better than the Gators in Ken Palm they had um, yeah they had a uh, uh, they had a lot of bad luck, a lot of like one or two possession losses and a really good Big Ten. So I do think that you know you're some some might see an eleven and fourteen Penn State team and be like, oh that sucks. But uh, but Jones is pretty interesting. Again, like a six foot three, I think a legitimate six three guard. Uh, but again, not a point guard. Um, but can handle it a little bit. Can use ball screens a little bit. Um, he's got a really Hitchy jump shot, uh, but his numbers are really good. Like, he's, I I forget exactly, I think he was somewhere in the range of of 40% three point shooter, but when you look at his, uh, Uh, When you look at his like game to game, it's like he was like, which this is totally what you'd expect from someone with a really hitchy, weird looking jump shot is like there was like one for eight, two for nine. And then there was like four for five, five for six. So a very streaky shooter that like in the net, like overall uh, turned out to be like a good percentage shooter, but it's just like a little bit funky. Uh, He also has like a Noah Locke-esque aversion to... Getting it inside and scoring, um, a few more attempts inside than than, than Locke did, but uh, not someone who's who's great at scoring on the inside. But yeah, still like kind of living in the mid range, living from three. He was like a fifteen point per game scorer in, in the big in the Big Ten. So so that's a name that that I know Florida's after. I don't have a good feel for exactly um, where Florida might be. I think he's deciding Sunday. Um, so we might know soon uh maybe we know yeah we know more about his interest kind of yeah soon but that's a that was that's that's a guy that florida's in on in, in his final four schools and uh but i get i think again back to the original question if i think i remember it does florida have enough offense uh man i will we'll see i think when you lose your 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 leading guy uh again, I look at Florida's roster and I see like, okay, Tyree Appleby, uh, you know, he'd be like, he's an okay second option. Um, really good third option. Brandon McKissick. I kind of feel the same way. Colin Castleton kind of feel the same way, you know, like decent second option. You'd really love him as your third option. Uh, CJ Felder, you know, your perfect, like glue guy, fifth guy on the floor. So I I, I do look at Florida's team and I say, uh, you know, I like some of these guys if they were in secondary positions, but, uh, man, it's just it's tough to replace stars and all SC players and future lottery picks. So um, I do have a little bit of a concern about Florida's ability to score. And, uh, yeah, maybe uh, maybe we see them going back to, uh, you know, the, the early years of, of Mike White, where Florida might be, like, 40th offensively. But if they can get back into the top 15 defensively, maybe they make something happen.
2: Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, I have huge pause, I think, about, this team's offensive potential next season. I'm kind of laugh. I was kind of laughing as you were talking because I, I hesitated to say this to people, you know, I, I said at the time when Trey Mann was about to play his last home game, you know, Hey, hope people appreciated what they had. And, and you know, I mentioned the offensive efficiency here at the beginning. I, I think that Florida. They played much faster pace this season and were far more offensively efficient than I think that they're going to be next season, which It's certainly concerning when you, when what you just said, you factor in what you just said, Eric, if they can make up the ground defensively, which obviously I think the additions of McKissick and Felder, you can sit here and say that they were very defensively minded. I mean, guys that you talk about a guy who was blocking more than two shots per game and and another guy who was averaging 1.5 steals per game. That defensive was Florida's worst problems this season. I thought they were a good team getting out in transition on the offensive end, but transition defense, their front court defense, their ball screen defense, they can improve so much next season from where they were defensively. But on the offensive standpoint, these next two transfers that they add in here, I really think are gonna be, they're gonna have to be critical. Maybe they're gonna be a guy like Colin Castleton, a former four star prospect who didn't really have much of an opportunity, isn't coming in here with double digit scoring numbers but could be a primary option if given the opportunity. Maybe it's Samson or Niles. The one name that we haven't mentioned here that I really think is going to be better than advertised is, and I know you guys know it, is, is Kwasi Reeves. You know, I think that Kwasi Reeves is going to do what Niles and Samson didn't really have a chance of doing. And they're going to be the first freshmen since Andrew Nemhard and Noah Locke came into this program to, I think, compete for serious minutes in the first six, seven games of the season. And that'll really be because more of a correction in my mind to what we saw last year. You're going to have a normal off season. You're going to have normal workouts in June. You're going to have fully vaccinated players by June. I I mean, everything is going to be far different, a correction in terms of the progression for a lot of these guys. And I think that you'll see Niles, Samson and Kawasi take a huge leap. If Kawasi Reeves can come in as a freshman and average eight to 10 points a game, and start looking as a primary scorer, even if it's coming off the bench, that'd be huge for Florida next season. And would really alleviate a lot of these concerns that we've talked about right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm still kind of in the process of like, I have obviously been so high on Reeves for so long, but I, I, and I think that like, I'm really glad that that Florida fans are like really hyped up for, for a recruit, particularly one who like got offered by the Gators back in 2018 and just like, Florida always seemed to lead. Uh, Then he commits early. He's just so excited to get on campus. He's going to get on campus as early as he possibly can. I'm so glad that Florida fans are really excited for this guy, but I I do wonder if maybe some people's expectations have gotten a little bit high. Again, I just look at uh, a lot of, you know, even high five-star recruits. It's just like they often just don't quite have the impact that a lot of people expect. And uh, again, it's just with Florida lacking a number one option right now. I, I think that there are going to be some people who say like, oh, you know, Quasey Reeves, he could be that guy. And you know what? I, I really do believe that he could be that guy. I just, again, if that's what you're you're banking on, could be tough. But uh, man, like, talking about some of our our roster composition stuff, like man, if it's you know Tyree Appleby and 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 Reeves is good enough to start, and then suddenly you're, you've got you know six one or six two, and then you know six foot six, six seven, Reeves, and then it's like. Oh, do you put you, there's a guy who handles the ball and can initiate. So, does that get recensive out there? Suddenly, you've got six foot seven, six foot seven on the wings, or whether it's in Niles Lane and you've got six five, six seven. Uh, and then CJ Felder, legitimate, uh, legitimate size, po- legitimate power forward size. Uh, Con Castleton, legitimate center size. Suddenly, uh, yeah, suddenly it's like this is a team that's looking a lot more, a lot longer, a lot more athletic. And uh, you could start to see how they could uh, maybe get, get a little bit better uh, on the defensive side. So, uh, yeah, I'm surprised that, you know, in our discussion about wings, we didn't get into Kwasi Reeves uh, earlier, so I'm glad you
0: glad you brought that up, Graham. Yeah, I'll, I, I will close with the thought on the swamp recruiting. We need Chris Acker to be our number one offensive option. That sounds good, actually. Um, Chris Acker, of course, the offensive coordinator at San Diego State, uh, who made uh, <laughs> Brian Dutcher look really smart uh, the last couple years. Um And, uh, anytime you can get a mountain West team into the top 20 in offensive efficiency, considering strength of schedule, you're, you're doing a pretty good job of coaching basketball. One thing I'll point out on the fear of offense and I don't, you know, I'm not going to say, well, since Keontae is coming back, it'll all be fine. Um, you know, and of course that, that would make things a whole lot different. Um, but let's say that doesn't happen, uh, which I think is a reasonable expectation at this point because we don't know anything um, to the contrary. Um, Arkansas lost Isaiah Joe. Uh, their kind of Trey man guy uh, lost 55% of their offensive production and filled 10 new scholarship spots. And yes, they added Moses Moody, which I think is like the obvious correction to that theory, but Moses Moody wasn't ranked much higher than Kawasi Reeves, who's on the fringe of being a five-star player. Very similar in terms of profile offensively. I do think Kowasi is a little bit better of a shooter, and Moses is a good shooter. Um, so if you get... You don't even need Moses Moody's 16.4 production, right? Like, if you get 12.5, which is what Jaden Springer averaged from Kowasi, and then all of a sudden there's balance elsewhere, which Florida didn't really have this season. Well, how was Arkansas so good? They were so good because they had four to five guys on the floor at any given time who could score, right? And if your second pair of guards but still playing significance minutes is McKissick and Lane, right, which are probably pretty dang tenacious defensively as well, um, you know, then you're starting to talk about a team that has real layers that has a lot of different looks they can throw at you, whose rotations make a little more sense uh, for all those who who have heard us harp on that. And I think then that might be Florida's answer. Their answer next year might not be, hey, here's our primary score. It might be the Arkansas version, which is we don't really have one. It's Moses Moody if we have to, to, right? And that was his role. And Eric Musselman said, well, Moses is our guy if we have to have one but really what we want to do is put teams in a position where there's four or five guys on any night who might get 10 or 11 points. And that makes you much tougher to defend.
1: I would also set up if, uh, if Florida, if Mike White does go back to the uh, the dribble drive, if that's the thing he wants to do, I mean, getting Quasey Reeves and getting uh, uh, Brandon McKissick, it's uh, could put it more in that direction. Um, the right, when it was Andrew Demhard and, and Noah Locke and Scotty Lewis uh, those guys did not fit the, the dribble drive offense, but it's like, Hey, it's uh, it's the, the the guys that they're bringing in right now. Uh, they, they, they would. So uh, maybe we go, go, we see that a little bit more and uh, that would be something that's, I mean that's, that's similar to what, to what Arkansas runs. So uh, that parallel might really work. So uh, yeah, good point. Good point, Neil.
0: Graham, uh, tell everybody where to find you. Twitter.com.
2: Hey, this has been great guys. Thanks for having me on. It's, Always my pleasure. You guys do a fantastic job all the time. You're writing uh, fantastic as well. Every single medium. I'm, I'm learning a lot from you guys. So I really had a lot of time. Well, really, really good time coming on here tonight. I really got to say, um, you guys can follow me on Twitter if you like bad um, cat takes and occasional uh, well researched articles when I when I retweet Eric or, or Neil, you can follow me at Twitter Graham Hall underscore me at gatorsports.com. I got some stuff on gymnastics coming out here. Uh, I wrote something on TJ Slayton and his pro day and how American Heritage has a chance to set a record um, at the NFL draft here at the end of the month. So plenty of stuff coming up, but I uh, always love talking basketball. My true love with you guys.
0: How's House Trinity's ankle?
2: Uh, we'll have to see. You know, she, she has only done bars here the last two two weeks and hasn't been able to uh, fully compete in practice, but they have an extra week off this week and she's staying off it. So um, they think she'll be able to do at least two events in Texas next week. So,
0: wrapper uh, and bubble wrap. Rapper and bubble wrap. All right. We'll Thanks everybody. It. Thanks everybody for listening and uh, we will be back. Appreciate it.